0: You're listening to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. Every
1: sister needs a woman, every woman needs a sister, every sister needs a woman.
0: My name is Salona Kanu, thank you for listening. Since around the 1920s, during the first wave of the feminist movement, women have been fighting for their bodily autonomy and reproductive rights. And while there have been developments throughout the world with women not only having knowledge about and understanding their bodies, but also having access to various birth control methods, and in some countries, access to safe and legalized abortion. And abortion is what I'm going to be focusing on today. Feminists understand that at the root, having control over our own bodies is an important step in working towards the full liberation of women. So in the aftermath of the so-called Fetal Heartbeat Bill being introduced in some American states, including Ohio, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Kentucky, I began thinking about women's reproductive rights and abortion access around the world and decided to reach out to some of the bold women who are fighting for this right, for the women of their country. First, let's take a look at what's happening here in Canada. The situation that stands today is mainly as a result of a particular action by prominent abortion activist Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, who in 1979 publicised the fact that he had carried out over 5,000 abortions in his clinic in Quebec, at a time when abortion was decriminalised but heavily restricted in Canada. And after several years of acquittals and appeals, Dr. Morgenthaler, along with his associates, Dr. Robert Scott and Dr. Leslie Smoling, Appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada in 1988, which resulted in the abortion law at the time, Section 251 of the Criminal Code, being struck down, with the ruling that it violated Charter 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, namely, that it violated a woman's right to life, liberty, and security of the persons. So in theory, given that this 1988 Supreme Court of Canada ruling meant that Canada has no specific law governing abortion to this day, This means that abortion access in Canada is legal, safe, and easily accessible, right? Well, not quite. In Canada, it is the responsibility of each province to regulate access to abortion, and this is where the problem arises. Women in Canada still have trouble accessing abortion due to these inconsistent provincial laws, and as a result of these laws, funding and access issues arise. For example, in Ontario, the provincial healthcare program doesn't fund abortions in all clinics in the province. And in New Brunswick, the provincial healthcare program only funds hospital abortions, not abortions in an abortion clinic, of which there is only one in the entire province anyway. So if you're a woman in New Brunswick seeking an abortion and don't live near Bathurst or Moncton, you either have to drive for hours to reach one of these hospitals, or you have to shell out about $800 for the procedure in Fredericton. Or if you're a woman in Alberta seeking an abortion, you will need to travel to either Edmonton or Calgary as there are only two abortion clinics in the entire province. We need to take into consideration the condition of women's lives. Women may not have a flexible workplace to take time off to travel. They may not have the disposable income to spend $800 up front. They may not have a supportive family or friend network that they can share what they're going through with. They may have recently moved province or be a recent immigrant and so won't yet be eligible for the provincial healthcare plan or they may not have legal immigration status in Canada at all. On top of these factors, certain provinces restrict abortion to quite early on in the pregnancy. For example, Prince Edward Island only allows abortions up to 12 weeks and 6 days. When you consider that on average women normally find out they're pregnant at around 6 to 9 weeks, this might only leave a woman 3 weeks to make the decision of whether or not to go through with the pregnancy find out what her options are in terms of accessing an abortion in her province, and get an appointment. Which in provinces with very limited abortion access, wait times can sometimes be much longer than this. Clearly there are many factors that need to be improved upon here. The situation is certainly not as perfect as it appears. And this is really just scratching the surface of the systemic issues around abortion access and delivery in Canada though it is vastly improved in comparison to the situation where Gabriela is working. Gabriela works as a lawyer with Anis, which is a feminist, not-for-profit NGO in Brazil who seek to promote equality for women, and who are the first organization in Brazil to take a legal case against the government on the issue of abortion. I spoke with Gabriela from her office in Brasilia and asked her to give me a bit of an overview of the situation there.
2: So abortion is criminalized in Brazil, a woman who performs an abortion can be punished, uh, can can go to jail for up to three years, and anyone that helps her can be punished with uh, can can go to jail too. Can be punished with prison for up to four years. Either uh, it's if it's a friend of it's a health professional, they can be punished with four years in prison, mm-hmm. and that's the scenario. But regarding Other topics uh, beyond abortion we also have very uh, awful statistics for example uh, we can say that over half of all uh, pregnancies in Brazil are unintended so we can see that we have high rates of um, um, unmet needs for contraception in the country and we also don't have uh, comprehensive sexual education in, in schools From my understanding, the political situation in Brazil
0: has undergone some significant changes in the last few years. Can you tell me if this has had any effect
2: on the fight for reproductive rights in the country? So, well, the political scenario has changed a lot in the last uh, six years because we came to be this, considered to be a rising star in the democratic scenario, global democratic scenario with uh, Lula governments and leftist governments to now having Bolsonaro in power. So this we have to bear in mind this, this overall scenario for uh, political dynamics in Brazil that also has an impact on the debates on sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, we once had a, a minister for women's uh, rights that we don't have anymore. Actually, we have one that is uh, called the Ministry for Women, Families and Human Rights which is now being uh, governed by a woman who used to be an evangelical pastor. So mm-hmm. in, in terms of institutional politics, that that's what we have now, and this says a lot about how this government sees uh, reproductive rights. Actually, uh, we have an institutional attack on these debates, mm-hmm. and we have uh, an institutional... Um, echoing of this narrative of uh, the, the, the fight against gender ideology. So this is how we are right now. And for a while now, uh, for, I would say, the last maybe 15 years, it has been very difficult to challenge um, these laws in Congress. So it's not something that Bolsonaro has changed a lot, but we have been having conservative um Uh, uh, parliamentaries for a very long time. So the the main strategy is to try to uh, broaden this debate on reproductive rights has been the courts. The only change we have had in the last years in our abortion laws was uh, because of a decision of our Supreme Court that uh, my organization, uh, in in a litigation case that my organization led, it was decided in 2012, which, um, in which they decided that all women with uh, anencephalic pregnancy—that uh, means with uh, pregnant with a fetus uh, with no brain—could uh, um, access uh, a legal abortion. This was the the only change we had since the 1940s in our criminal law on abortion. This is some. It seems to be, and somehow it can be considered to be a very small change because this type of pregnancies are not that often and it's only for a very specific case of an unviable pregnancy. The fact that it was the first time a debate on abortion reached the Supreme Court and how the justices could frame uh, this debate around a type of compulsory pregnancy being considered a form of torture was very important. Uh, This happened in 2012 and now we have two other pending cases, pending cases in our Supreme Court, one related to the Zika epidemic and the possibility for women uh, infected by Zika and who identify themselves to be in mental suffering to be able to access uh, abortion, and the other one which asks for abortion to be decriminalized until the 12th week of pregnancy. These two cases are also led by the organization uh, where I work, Mm -hmm. and they are pending right now. So it seems like ANIS is one
0: of the most prominent organizations in Brazil doing work around this issue. Can you tell me a bit about your organization and the strategies that you've employed over the years?
2: We are an organization that works in different set of strategies. We we work a lot with research, as I mentioned before, with uh, social science and public health research, but also with communication. And we produce uh, documentary films, and we also work with uh, social media material. So, and, and usually we try to interconnect all these strategies. So at the same time that we have these pending cases at the court, we try to think about how to make this debate um, become more, how to say, more hegemonic in society. And we can't achieve that only by just filing these cases. So we have to think about uh, complementary strategies mm-hmm. we have uh we have produced the um, two most uh, recognized researches around illegal abortion in brazil which is called the national abortion survey in which we found out it was an, a national uh, census in which we found out that one in five women by the age of 40 in brazil have already had an abortion mm-hmm. so, and also that it in two thousand and fifteen, over five hundred thousand women had abortions in Brazil illegal abortions. so by we believe that by producing reliable data about what it means to be punishing all these women is something very important to move the political debate. So we have this uh, research, and also we have been producing, as I mentioned documentary films on the topic, and the latest one we produced, which was uh, released last year is one which shows the stories of five women, five Brazilian women that have had abortions. Mm-hmm. And this uh for countries like Canada or the US it might seem to be an easy task to find women that would tell their stories, but we have to bear in mind that this is a crime in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So to really find these women that would show her face and really show her stories and her families and say I, at some point in my life, had to had a, have an abortion It's something huge and it helps us moving narratives that women who seek abortions are not only this stereotypical uh, adolescent or these women who don't want to be mothers. But no, they, they can be, and they usually are, mothers. They know what motherhood is. They have families. They have uh, other people that count on them. And choosing or maybe having to have an abortion usually is uh, a decision that they take uh, taking consideration these other aspects of their lives. The mm-hmm. other people they have to care for, their other children, their families. And it doesn't matter if they are Catholic, evangelical, if they have religious beliefs. When they have to face this situation, they just have to do it. So we believe that this helps us uh, moving the political debate, too. Are we able to find it online? Not yet. It will, because actually it's being as I told, uh, we have nine stories in this documentary, and it's now being broadcasted by a Brazilian TV uh, channel. Okay. And they have split it in, in the nine stories separately, so it, they're broadcasting it online. Uh, for some time now, and they're only going to allow us to put it on, on the website after they have finished broadcasting it. So soon it should be available, but it's not yet. Okay.
0: Brazil is just one of many, many countries where women living there do not have access to abortion. At present, there are 26 countries in which all abortions are illegal, regardless of whether pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. And in 37 countries, it is illegal unless it is strictly to save the mother's life or preserve her health. The Republic of Ireland was one such country, where abortion was restricted to only when the mother's life was at risk. That is until the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution was struck down, following a referendum in 2018. I spoke with Joanne Neary of the Leitrim branch of the Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, who told me about the situation in Ireland following the referendum last year. It's
1: a very complex issue. I'm aware that it's a very, very complex issue. But, um, you know, not allowing women to access abortion care and make decisions for themselves and for their family is a really, really bad thing and has very bad consequences. And I feel very, very strongly that all women should be able to access it. Mm
0: -hmm. Could you give me a bit of an overview of this situation around abortion rights in Ireland right now. Um, I know that things have changed really drastically over the last
1: year. The, The campaign for repeal, like, I was part of the Leitrim group. I was part of the Sligo abortion rights group initially. And it kind of suited me better geographically to be part of the Leitrim group. And I'm really, really happy that I was. A lot of the women in that group would have campaigned since the 80s. They would have spent all of their fertile lives living under the Eighth Amendment Mm -hmm. and would have suffered consequently. The campaign was very, very intense. Lots of people didn't sleep right. Lots of people got a lot of abuse. And then when the Eighth Amendment was repealed, and we we knew it would be, like, we were very, very confident that it would be. So it's kind of like you, you mm-hmm. kind of say, you know, an awful lot has changed within the last year. That change had happened over many, many years. And I suppose... Lots of people became more aware of certain things that had happened in Ireland and they just had enough, you know, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think a massive turning point would have been the death of Savita Halapanabar. Her husband spoke to the newspapers in India and, 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 and in Ireland and looking at the difference in the headlines. In, I think in India there was referred to that, you know, the doctors had killed this this, they killed a doctor. In Ireland it was, I think, The story kind of would have gone along the lines, right, her her husband recalled it, that the nurse who spoke to him said, you know, we don't do that here. This is Catholic Ireland. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of thinking, for Christ's sake, like, you know, that lady's life could have been saved. And, And not only could it have been saved, like she suffered in an awful, awful way. He could have had his wife, they could have had their child, they could have been very happy. And it was just absolutely appalling. And I think that caused uproar here. So there was there was an awful lot happening in the lead-up to the abortion rights campaign. And then we had the referendum and, of course... Um, we, we were massively relieved, even though you kind of knew it would happen. Mm-hmm. But it does take a very long time for the law to bed in. And in the West of Ireland, it's very, very different. Because what we have are progressive people living in slowly changing conservative societies. So I know that in Donegal, a doctor has been threatened on the sidelines of a pitch In Leitrim, we have spoken to doctors and they said that they won't turn anyone away, but they will not put their names on the list of conscientious providers because one doctor that I spoke to, he said, you know, I'm self-employed. I've got one very um, uh, anti-choice employee, like, you know, this is my livelihood. And I was a bit kind of ticked off. I was I was actually in with my daughter at the time who had tonsillitis and I was saying, you know, your employee doesn't know my daughter is in here, but at the same time, they they, they fear threats and they are being threatened. They fear intimidation.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so in the West, it's very, very different. In Donegal, there's one doctor who is conscious, a conscientious provider. In Sligo and Leitrim, we still don't have any. So, um, the law is there but attitudes change slower i can imagine if any woman went to a doctor in leitrim or sligo you you know what we have to remember is these doctors are administering pills they're just prescribing pills you know Mm -hmm. mostly you know because the limit is up to 12 weeks they're not surgical abortions so um i think there. this is just my opinion just based on on the few doctors that we've spoken to the doctors are ticked off that the, the the government have pushed everything on them. You know, they, the only communication that the government had with the GPs in the lead up to this was some letter saying, you know, this will happen in the new year. This is the date that we're planning to roll the service out. The GPs haven't got an increase in their pay and their, you know, the resources remain the same. So Ireland is, you know, it's... It's go- going through rough patches, and people n- have a lot to give out about. Like, mm-hmm. that's true.
0: Ireland is like a, a beacon of inspiration to a lot of um, feminists mm-hmm. around the world who are fighting in countries that don't yet have abortion access. What What would you encourage other other women to do in order to get the to get their own laws changed?
1: This is not a campaign that is isolated. Women definitely are rising up and we all need to reach out and support each other.
0: That's, that's really, um, I do have a lot of um, belief in the fact that women's rights are an international issue, they are very global. And just across the border into Northern Ireland, I spoke with Emma Campbell and Derry, who organizes with Alliance for Choice. This year, for the first time, As a result of the Northern Irish government being suspended, pressures building around Brexit negotiations, and hard work done by pro-choice activists, Northern Ireland have a real possibility to have the current restrictive abortion laws reformed. Would you mind giving me an overview of the situation in Northern Ireland at the moment for women and their reproductive rights?
3: Yeah, so right now, this very moment, if you need an abortion in Northern Ireland, you either have to travel to England, which is a plane or a boat, get one there, or you have to order pills online if you can't travel there are very very few exceptions so the only exception is if the woman's um, life is at risk there are no exceptions for rape there are no exceptions for fetal abnormalities there's there's no exceptions for if it's an under 18 there's no exceptions so and currently we've we've had a number of different uh, women who've been arrested for accessing the pills. We've had one young young woman who's been charged, um, and a couple of different court cases going through. So with that with that kind of backdrop, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, stigma but there's been uh, no government no we we usually have a devolved government in Northern Ireland which is our own local assembly with our own local elected politicians they don't control every single law but they are responsible for things like health or crime or so on and have our own budget for those kind of things but we are still answerable to the UK for things like our welfare programs um, most taxation human rights you know the big stuff we We have an ally in England called... Called the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, and they sent a lot of their members out to their MPs as constituents to ask them specifically this question about Northern Ireland. You know, did they did their um, representatives agree that an outcry that uh, some women in Northern Ireland had less rights than others? And the person that really picked that up and ran with it was a politician called Stella Creasy. And the way she does pol There's another politician called Diana Johnson who's been writing a decriminalisation bill for the whole of the UK, but private members' bill because she's a backbencher, she doesn't sit in the in the cabinet um, is a lot harder and they're obviously the opposition party they're not the government government party they're both labour politicians and um, so it's a lot harder for a bill like that to get passed and they kind of tend to pass the first reading and then get lost in a list of ballot waiting to be heard again so stella creasy's method is slightly different now we didn't necessarily know this when she was the one who decided to run with it but it's worked in our favor so anytime any bill um came through parliament that looked like she might be able to squeeze something about northern irish um abortion laws in there she did which was a very by the seat of your pants way of working, but it turned out to be a successful way of doing things. As long as the government in Northern Ireland continue to not speak speak properly to each other by the 21st of October, the law will come into effect. And we will, from the 22nd of October, have a situation where no woman and no medical practitioner can be arrested for providing someone with the means to access an abortion or accessing an abortion themselves. And there will be a moratorium on all the prosecutions that are ongoing, no matter when the crime was committed, which means the few cases that are still waiting to be heard in court will be dropped so that will be (laughs) amazing the very important thing is the is the baseline decriminalization so it's it'll be decriminalized up to 24 weeks
0: like it's an interesting situation in northern ireland where you're essentially governed by the uk you're attached to the south but you're like in this limbo i guess and that seems like the biggest that has been the biggest challenge for um, having any progress on on women's reproductive rights has been that limbo and not really having a clear direction of who to go to.
3: Yeah, and it's it, it means that we've had to campaign in three directions and three jurisdictions, and the message has to be slightly different for each one. And we're not a very you know, we're a very, very small organization, and that. That work can be very uh, logistically and emotionally time-consuming as well, mm-hmm. and also there's a lot of complex uh, constitutional law involved. Are mm-hmm. in you know in terms of the issues around devolution and who's responsible for human rights, and so um, trying to explain those things to the public can be quite a challenge. Often, so in terms of what we do on the ground here, a lot of it is about trying to communicate those complex legal issues to the public in a way that's easy to understand.
0: Could you give a bit of an overview of um, what else is happening in your organization and what other kinds of strategies are um, the women who you're working with employing in order to get abortion decriminalized?
3: we do the traditional kind of let's meet once a month and talk about what we're what we're doing in the month coming up. Mm-hmm. We do um, arts events. We do political lobbying and campaigning. We have a huge, for you know, for the size of us, we have a huge presence on social media, um, and that's been really important as well. Like the the use of social media for um, grassroots activism really kicked off around mm-hmm. the time. Um, that I joined as well so Facebook just suddenly became a thing where people had groups and and organizing chats and stuff on it and that maybe you know that hasn't maintained that's changed really to a lot of it would really now be more on Twitter and Instagram but that's fairly recent that was you know two years ago it was still mostly all done on Facebook and w- I mean I think what that did is it give it gave people a bit of bravery so we were able to use those channels you know television programs suddenly started putting the live feeds underneath and we would make sure that if anything was being talked about in terms of abortion, that we had people calling in with a pro-choice view, because normally it was only the anti-choice view that you heard, because even though they're in the minority in terms of population, they have the ear of the majority party. So they get overrepresented in the media. So it kind of was able, finally, we were able to get that balance. And people are a bit more savvy now about whether it's a genuine account from Northern Ireland or if it's, you know... um a paid or a you know a camp quite often a lot of the messages which was the same as i'm sure you know in the repeal campaign a load of americans on twitter (laughs) who uh are in anti-choice organizations who are kind of tasked with flooding in you know anti-choice opinions so just last week whenever the news was kind of bedding down about the the possibility of this new law coming in um all our local representatives were sent thousands of emails Mm -hmm. but when they looked into them, you know, only a tiny fraction of those were actually from people in Northern Ireland. But, you know, all that awareness around social media has definitely grown. Uh, We also, we had a clinic, uh, an abortion clinic that provided for the very few women that that met the strict criteria. It was open in Belfast for about five years. And for four of those years, we were clinic escorts, volunteer clinic escorts. So we took... We took women in and out of the clinics via the protesters because they were quite vicious here. They were a lot more vicious than they were in England. And again, they were definitely trained in America. One of the, they have a rogue crisis pregnancy center that's open in the center of Belfast and it's called Stanton Healthcare. And all you have to do is Google it. It's an American organization. Oh, wow. So
2: yeah, it is,
3: yeah. um, And that, us being the escorts, I think gave some people who wouldn't, who would have been more scared to be openly pro-choice, to be openly openly able to condemn the anti-choice protesters because their actions were so, you know, deplorable? Really, but definitely being allied with abortion rights campaigns helped that an awful lot.
0: I was so excited to be able to talk to Emma at such a pivotal time in Northern Irish history. But I'm even more excited to be able to give you an update about the legislative changes that have happened since I recorded this interview. So as you heard from Emma, a deadline was put in place for the Northern Irish government to be restored. Otherwise, abortion and same-sex marriage would be decriminalised. That deadline of October 21st, 2019 came and went. And so on October 22nd, abortion and also same-sex marriage was decriminalised in Northern Ireland. This means that women and girls can terminate a pregnancy and healthcare providers can perform abortions without fear of being prosecuted. The Northern Ireland Secretary is mandated to put regulations on abortion in place by March 31st, 2020. So this is definitely a space to watch. And that's it for part one of this two-part series on reproductive rights. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part two, where I speak to the inspiring Carol Downer, the woman responsible for leading the reproductive self-help movement in the 1970s. Women's Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada, by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Mixcloud, and our website, rapereliefshelter.bc.ca. What you're hearing is our theme song. It's called Sisterhood, and it's created by Music Liberatory.
2: You a sister, woman
1: Every woman needs a sister Every sister